Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to talk about what it takes to keep your IT security team intact during the Great Resignation. Now, retention is a big issue, isn't it? I mean, we still are in COVID and may be there for a few more months. Changes continue to happen. It looks better than it looks worse, etc. The economy has certainly improved since the probably shortest recession on record, and career options are as great as they've ever been. Well, what do we mean when we talk about the Great Resignation? The Bureau of Labor Statistics announced that since April of 2021, over 20 million workers have quit their jobs. Now, after retail, the industry segment losing the most people was professional in business services. So this hits kind of close to home. The Work Institute 2020 retention report stated that 42 million U.S. workers left their jobs voluntarily the previous year. Now that's 2019. That's pre-COVID. And this voluntary turnover costs firms in aggregate over $630 billion in termination costs, replacement, vacancies, and training expenses. And yet, seven of the 10 top turnover categories are considered preventable, including number one, availability of career development. Anthony Klotz, an organizational psychologist at Texas A&M, coined the term the Great Resignation earlier this year to describe the phenomenon of literally tens of millions of workers quitting their jobs since the start of COVID. Now, people are reflecting on their lives while at the same time facing increased stress as well as facing burnout. Now, for most of us, working from home has been a change. And that's really changed the perspective for many people who are no longer getting up early, shower, shave, get the kids off to school, get in the car, commute, get stuck in traffic, get to the job, work, go ahead and try to go ahead, get everything done, turn around, reverse that, come home, cook dinner, help with the homework, da, 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 and then repeat five times a week. The work from home has said, hey, wait a minute. Klotz has observed four potential reasons why people have reassessed their situation and why they may be leaving in a lot more numbers. Number one, the backlog of resignations due to uncertainty. Now, people postpone quitting due to the uncertainty of the economy, which is now much more certain. Of course, burnout is a good reason for people quitting their job, and it's also an excellent predictor of turnover. And as managers and as leaders, are we monitoring our people effectively? Can we see if they're trending toward burnout? Yeah, from time to time, we got to work really hard. But if you're working really hard all the time, it's going to overload and it's going to break. Number three, the pandemic epiphany. People question their relationships with their jobs. And a lot of them realize there's more to a successful life than just work. At number four, work from home met a basic human need of autonomy. People don't want to go back to the office if they don't have to. Some executives are saying, we want everybody back, and other people are complaining. Well, these people don't understand at the executive level what their people want. Of course, it's a job, right? If it were all fun and games and we didn't have to expend any real effort, why would we have to get paid? So there does need to be some sort of a give and take. 
But if you have employees, expect that this is going to start to hit close to home if it haven't happened already. Now, women have dropped out of the workforce at twice the rate of men. Now, the U.S. once led the world in women participation in the workforce, and now we're ranked number six of the seven largest economies. And our care economy is deficient in the United States. We don't offer the same family benefits, the same leave, the same opportunities as many European nations with whom we compete on an international scale. And there's some proposed legislation that may or may not address this. But we're now to the point where 25% of our IT security workers are female. That's a whole lot better than when I first got in this career, but we still got a long way to go. But we can't afford or permit the loss of this critical talent because of management insensitivity or refusal to provide for the needs of our fellow professionals. Yeah. Traditionally, women are the caregivers for children. Working parents have different requirements. Are you recognizing that in your workplace? Does your organization consider your people as a critical resource? Laszlo Bach, a former Google HR director, and he's a founder of Humu, states, quote, the single most important thing is to make humans actually feel like human beings, unquote. Now, that seems sort of obvious, but today there's no longer a stigma to quitting or switching jobs. And let's think about it. We talk about essential jobs, but we don't necessarily think about essential people. So how are you reacting to all this? And I don't mean by updating your resume. We need to consider carefully and individually the needs of our people and to connect with them. Now, it's difficult to connect with everybody if you have more than, let's say, 30 or so people. So you'll need to ensure that your direct reports who are managers make that connection as well. I found a great blog on Trello.com by Lydia Derkovic entitled Navigating the Great Resignation, How to Retain Employees When No One Else Can. Now, I'm going to borrow some of her ideas, so I want to make sure I provide adequate attribution. Now, many employees are asking themselves, why would I stay at a job where I'm unhappy when I know there's something better somewhere else? Now, maybe it's the free money that came from stimulus checks that gave some people a little breathing room in the rat race or being underutilized in the first few weeks of the work from home pandemica or even about with COVID or a loved one who had COVID that provided a wake-up call. People are looking. Your people are looking. And as a leader, you have to do something about it, or you likely will lose your best people in the next several months. Now, this is a different dynamic. Harvard Business Review observed five years ago that, quote, people leave their jobs because they don't like their boss, they don't see opportunities for promotion or growth, or offered a better gig and often higher pay, and these reasons have held steady for years, unquote. All right, that's 2016 study. Now, they point out that the work anniversaries are associated with about a 9% increase in job hunting. And major birthdays, like turning 40 or 50, are associated with a 12% increase. But what's the biggest stimulus that they found from their research? Reunions, seeing how your old friends are doing, 
comparing yourself to what the folks were that you knew at age 18 or 22. That prompts a 16% jump in job hunting. Now, I think it'll be interesting to see in a couple of years from now what the actual numbers are for the pandemic, but I think it's going to set a new high watermark. All right. As managers, how do we know our people are looking? Well, we are in cybersecurity, so some of those answers are going to be at our fingertips. Tracking employee web traffic to career websites, counting the number of unsolicited emails from headhunters that get opened, an uptick in telephone usage during the workday to non-clients, maybe new phone numbers that you can correlate with caller ID. All of this is inbounds and does not represent big brother or intrusive observation on behalf of an organization. Now, I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV, so maybe other people could argue against that, but I think that's all inbounds. But also remember that clever security professionals know all of this and would be doing their searching with personal devices. And if they work from home, you know, you're likely not going to get any of these indicators. Well, social media postings are a clue, and that's fair game. People out there looking for jobs. Hey, anybody know something that's out there? Hey, let me link to this. You can spot that. If people are working in the office, maybe an uptick in midday exits from the parking garage or people badging out then back in other than routine lunches. Maybe an indicator that they're heading off to interviews. But all these technical means aside, the best way to know your staff's intentions is to get to know your staff. A survey by Oxford Economics showed nearly half of respondents, quote, would leave their current jobs for a lower paying position at a company with better organizational culture, end quote. And a McKinsey study noted that 40% of employees stated they're at least somewhat likely to leave their current job in the next three to six months. I should tell you that money doesn't solve all problems. Sure, it's nice to be well paid, but beyond a certain point, when necessities are taken care of, additional pay may not have the same motivational effect. And if you're homeless and you're out of work and many job will do, right? Unless you're Herman Hesse Siddhartha, who said, I can think, I can wait, I can fast. And the latter part of that quote was a declaration of freedom to not have to take a lousy job just because he needed money to eat. If you haven't read that masterpiece, let me recommend it to you for your enlightenment. Now, most people don't operate at the level of Siddhartha. The average person is going to reach some level of dissatisfaction, may or may not complain about it in a constructive manner, starts looking, and then just wants out. Now, the admonition, look before you leap, is written for them. For not everyone ends up in a better place if they're changing just for change's sake. What happens if somebody comes to you and says, hey, boss, I got a job offer. I'm, here's my two weeks notice. And you don't want to lose them. So what do we do? We, we make a counter offer. Well, that same Harvard Business Review article pointed out that you're better to intervene before employees get to the point of receiving an external offer. Why? Because statistically, half of the employees that accept a counter offer leave anyway within 12 months. Now, Brian Kropp from CEB describes it as follows, quote, it's almost like when you're in a relationship and you decide you want to break up, but your partner does something that makes you stick around a little longer. Mm, yeah. The lesson here is 
don't wait for your best staff to wander off and then try to pull them back. The forces that are encouraging people to change jobs are converging and they're reaching a modern crescendo. And passivity as a manager is not the way to go. Perhaps then the answer lies in the concept of corporate culture. People respond to circumstances in their work environment, what we might call that corporate culture. And in general, at least kind of my definition, is cultural, culture is essentially the expectations that members make on others within a group. Right? Having a positive culture in your workplace may be a key competitive advantage in retaining your people. But don't just assume because it looks good to you that it looks good to your staff. In one study, 56% of managers said team members show mutual respect, but only 41% of their employees agreed. So what goes into a supportive corporate culture? Kat Bugard's Trello post offers five strategies. Number one, prioritize trust and psychological safety. And that means empowering your people to do their best work. Give them their tools, resources, guidance, and well-defined objectives, and then get out of the way. Because nobody likes being micromanaged, and you need to be wary of micromanagement. It has its root in mistrust or insecurity, or maybe both. And if you find yourself doing it, assess why. Is it because your employees don't know how to do the job? and you don't trust that they can get it done, then get them the training they need. Get them the skills and expertise. And allow them to grow and develop. If you keep doing their job, they're never going to learn, and therefore they're going to be stuck where they're at. Number two is, what if you feel insecure in your position and need everything to look perfect for your boss? Um, You need to get yourself the psychological help you need. Seriously, that perfectionism is not good. Perfectionism basically is permission to delay, and it means inaction. It means redoing things over. And sometimes good enough is what we have to do. It's really hard if you're an entrepreneur, if really hard if you're the founder of a business. I understand that. I come from that perspective where if you hire somebody and you delegate something down, it's never going to get done the same way you would have done it. People are different. They approach it differently. Yet, At some point, you have to allow them to say, you know what, this is not going to sink the ship. This is going to work. And as a result, your people grow and they develop. As a Navy officer, I had a privilege to have nine commands. And in doing so, what I learned is an awful lot about how to coach new commanding officers in their responsibilities. When I was in the Navy Reserve, The selection rate for commanders to get command, okay, that's 05, that's equivalent to a lieutenant colonel, so anywhere from 15 to 21 years or so of expertise. All right, commander, right? You ought to be commanding. How many commanders got command? About 6%. 6%! That's less than getting your kid into Harvard. And so as a result, if you got one of those coveted 6% command jobs, what did you not want to do? Screw it up. And as a result, some of these new commanding officers took to micromanagement. Hey, let me see that muster report. I want to review it before it goes on. Let me take a look at that report. Let me see this. And they got involved in everything. And so what happens then 
is a stray way beyond that one weekend a month, which is kind of what you're getting paid for, but in command, you always know you're going to do extra. But then what happens is the commanders look great for their bosses, but they never develop their lieutenants because they're not given the opportunity to try and fail and learn. And one of the things I learned from a number of command assignments is what's absolutely critical and what's not. And I did not want my reputation to be the person with the perfect record. I wanted my reputation to be the person who got the most number of subordinates promoted in advance and ultimately into command. That to me was the legacy worth going for. And for you then, it means accepting a certain amount of risk. Yeah, it's not going to be perfect, but it's not going to sink the organization. So send it along. Let them get the feedback. Maybe get shoot out a little bit. Maybe you get shoot out a little bit. That's okay. You'll survive. Let it be a lesson learned. And the next time it's going to be a whole lot better, maybe a little tinier. And then finally they get it. And people feel a sense of accomplishment. You and I feel a sense of accomplishment. We finally get something. Okay. So the best way to show trust is to, to offer flexibility in terms of how do we define it's done. Focus on getting the job done, not in the hours logged. One of the things we're finding over the years prior to COVID is that there's an expectation that you're there long hours. When I worked at Ernst & Young up in Manhattan, the partner would come by about 8 o'clock in the evening and grab the senior managers and we go out for dinner. You were expected to be there by you know at 8 in the evening, but you're also there by 8 in the morning, all right? So just like the Navy, 12-hour days, half days, right? No big deal. But the expectation was you had that FaceTime, you're always there. But as we talked before a little bit about burnout, you're not always most effective. And we're finding when people can get up and step away from their desk a little bit at home for whatever, that they can still get work done and sometimes more work done. And as a result, you want to look at the effectiveness of your people in this latest work environment. And if it has improved, then maybe we don't need to go back to the old time clock mentality, but simply focus on, have we accomplished the mission? Have we gotten what we need to do? Another recommendation is to create a safe space for growth. Humans make mistakes. It makes us people, right? And what looks wrong to you may have come from the noblest of motivations by somebody else. If someone's truly loyal to the organization, it makes a misstep. Don't crush them in front of the others. Because when everybody's afraid to make a mistake, everyone will be afraid to innovate. And you'll have orderly lemmings walking single file over the cliff that wasn't there yesterday, but no one felt safe pointing out that things had changed. Now, here's an out-of-the-box idea. Celebrate failures as well as successes. Now, failure isn't a fail if there's a worthwhile lesson learned. Can others learn from the mistake? Now, more importantly, in cybersecurity, if somebody feels they need to hide a mistake to avoid getting yelled at or getting disciplined or trouble, what happens? Something gets in our enterprise, they don't say anything about it, a lateral movement takes place, and then we get the kill chain going, and before you know it, all kinds of other nasty stuff can follow. We want to create an environment where people can fearlessly say, hey, I just screwed up. I opened an attachment and it just doesn't look right. That's great if people can say that and not worry about getting 
in trouble. If people truly feel safe self-reporting on their mistakes, you're going to have a much stronger security posture because then people will let you know what's going on. One of my organizations that I work in, I work as a CISO, we had a new executive assistant come on board. And one of the things we told her is when you see suspicious stuff, let the IT security team know. Well, she sends us more suspicious emails to the executives that she manages than all the other EAs combined. But guess what? I never, ever criticize. I never, ever complain. I only offer positive feedback. Great catch. That's a fish. You got it. And this is what you noticed, right? You see, what you do is use those experiences because if people feel they're going to get Ha ha, what do you mean that you can't tell the difference between a real one? They're not going to do it anymore. Get them on board. All right. So we're talking about five different ideas about going to support of culture. Number two is encourage and respect time off. Now, years ago when I left my active duty career, I walked off my ship on a Friday. I drove from Norfolk to Washington that afternoon, then moved in over the weekend and started work at Booz Allen on Monday. Now, when I advanced to my next professional opportunity, I left Booz on the 31st, drove about 200 miles, and then started my new job on the 1st. Back to back, no time lost. Now, in retrospect, I may have benefited from a little less efficiency, and perhaps you can as well. Today, taking leave often means returning to hundreds or even thousands of emails crowding your inbox. Now, have you ever done a daily triage when on vacation just to keep your mailbox from getting out of hand when you get back? I mean, come on, I think we all do it. But what kind of mental break is that, that we can't just disconnect? Now, an out-of-office autoresponder may help because it tells people, hey, I may not be reading this, go talk to somebody else. And even better if they have a list of people that said, for this issue, talk to this person, for that issue, talk to that person. But what if somebody on your team could ensure that incoming messages are delegated, tracked, provide a daily summary, perhaps in their absence of the individual so that, okay, you get a one-time roll-up. This is going on, but things are okay. I've never had an executive assistant, so I don't know if that fits within the job description, but you shouldn't have to be a senior executive to benefit from this type of pressure release. So what happens when all these forces converge? Americans left 768 million vacation days on the table in 2018 with more than 30% of that forfeited permanently. A Glassdoor study showed that less than one in four employees take all their valuable time off, and 9% will work year-round. And sometimes I think I was part of that last statistic. Okay, number three, have the hard conversations. Lou Solomon's Harvard Business Review article entitled, Two-thirds of managers are uncomfortable communicating with employees, pretty much says it all in the title. She suggests being direct but kind. Listen, don't make it personal. Be present and inspire greatness. We all thrive on feedback, but a lot of times it isn't always forthcoming. As managers, those who, quote, carefully listen to the other person's point of view before giving them feedback, quote, were rated significantly higher by their direct reports. Think about it. When something comes up, how do we approach that in our communications? 
There is a dichotomy between the hard-charging mentality required to advance in certain corporate cultures and the emotional intelligence required to effectively inspire those who work for us. Now, not every conversation is going to be positive. As we said, people make mistakes, and sometimes a size 10 is more appropriate than a hug. It's knowing the better method to use that comes with maturity. Now, starting the conversation with, all right, what do you got to say for yourself, is not going to produce the same results as, you saw this situation differently than I did. Could you help me understand what you saw that I did not? Hmm. Now, if somebody expects to get their butt chewed, they're going to clam up. They're not going to provide what might become additional ammunition to be yelled at with. But you'll never know what really happened. And you might miss really important information that could be valuable to your entire team. I'm sorry, but the time for being a bully ended on a school playground. Don't wield your rank as a weapon. Use it as a means to inspire, communicate, and lead. All right, number four, offer tangible resources. Many companies provide access to mental health resources, but is it done with a stigma attached? Someone comes into your office, hey, boss, um, can we talk? I, I kind of have a problem. <laughs> hey, uh, go call that 800 number on the poster in the break room. I pay good money for those touchy-feely shrinks. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't communicate the I care message at all. Now, as we mentioned before, burnout is a real factor, especially in our line of work. I mean, even for me, I wrote and presented 52 podcasts in 52 weeks. Hooray! I made it for a year. <laughs> Guess what? This one's one week late. I missed last week. I mean, you can lift boxes when your brain is exhausted, but you can't force creativity because every now and then you and your people need a mental health break. All right. Think about it. You don't do yourself, your team, or your organization any good by working to the point of ineffectiveness. Being creative, in my opinion, is like doing 100 push-ups. I can do that easily if I take a break halfway through. But if forced to stay in the down position, I'm just not going to reach my goal. Number five, put your strategies into action. Talk to your team. Find out what they need. What's missing? What makes your people feel supported and validated? Okay, just asking questions doesn't create change. You have to follow through and actually act on that, or fairly quickly people are going to figure out that, well, you don't really care. Does your team trust you to make good on your promises? Because if you are trustworthy, you will earn the respect and loyalty of your coworkers. Ultimately, I think each of us has to find our purpose. Most people identify with their jobs. Think about it. When you meet someone for the first time, very quickly, if not immediately, the question often is, what do you do? What do you work for? Right? Knowing who you are and why you're here helps in staying focused. As managers, we can take a little bit of time to learn about our people, understand whether they're a good fit for the jobs that they hold. McKinsey published an article last year entitled, Igniting Individual Purpose in Times of Crisis. Rather timely. The author observed three things. One, people who have a strong sense of purpose tend to be more resilient and exhibit better recovery from negative events. Hmm, 
So if you have this sense of direction, something knocks you off track, I got to get back up on the track again. All right. Number two, people whose individual purpose is congruent with their jobs are more productive and outperform their peers. Think about it. We've all probably been at some point where there's a job which is just mundane. We don't care about it. It's more transactional than it is fulfilling. But we need the money or the money's really good or we have to keep occupied or something like that. But when your individual purpose aligns with what you're doing, that additional concern, that additional care is going to be huge and it's going to make a great sense. Now, when we take a look at number three, the purpose improves the employee experience, which is going to lead to a higher level of engagement, stronger organizational commitment, and increased sense of well-being. And that stronger organizational commitment, that is to say people whose individual purpose is aligned with what they're doing, is really going to help us in this whole thesis that I'm looking at about how do we counter the Great Resignation. Now, as a career military officer and a 9-11 first responder, I have experienced this overwhelming sense of purpose when you operate in dangerous or stressful or demanding situations. Yet it's that sense of purpose that kept us going in the face of adversity. And others who don't share it don't understand why we do what we do or did what we did. And well, that's okay. And for anybody who's ever served in combat, who's been over there in the Gulf these last it was 20 years or so, many of these folks who have served in the military have also experienced these, quote, peak experiences. And even if you're not military, how about some of the heroics to retool the organization during the pandemic? Some of the activities that we've done over the last year, year and a half to hold everything together. Those are peak experiences. And there's a natural letdown when things go back to normal. But as leaders, we need to capture and redefine that sense of purpose felt by our people so they don't get discouraged and wander off in search of new peak experiences. Now, there's different ways to assess people's preferences. At the beginning of World War II, Myers and Briggs developed a personality type model that's known by their name to help match millions of drafted soldiers to tasks for which they're best suited. And lest we think that that's a 1940s concoction, well, it kind of was, but 89 Fortune 100 companies still use it today. Now, the McKinsey article also points out nine types of individual purpose, which represent different motivational factors for individuals. I'm only going to mention a few in the interest of time, but those are motivated by achievement, want to be the most influential purpose person in the group, and want to have high status and power. Know anybody like that? Is it you? How about those motivated by caring? They want to help the people closest to them. They'll sacrifice for their loved ones. These are the people that are glue that keep your team together. Do you have them on your team? Do you know who they are? Did you know that? That's what motivates them. Some are motivated by freedom. They want to learn things for themselves. want to form their own opinions and choose their own goals. These people can create amazing new ideas, but they're going to operate a little bit outside, you know, color outside the lines a little bit. And if you're too rigid, you're not going to keep them around. There are some people who are motivated by respect. They 
absolutely do not want to be humiliated or shamed in front of others. They always say praise in public, punish in private. There's a reason for that. People will get turned off. They will feel that they have been slighted and they will never, ever, ever realign with the organization if they're motivated by respect. Now, there are others, conservation, tradition, enjoyment, stability, and equality and justice. We could look at each of those. And even from those terms, we can understand what people might want. Find a way to assess your team's individual motivations, even if it's informally through conversations. If you can align a person's preferences, their values, and a sense of purpose with the right kind of work, they're a lot less likely to leave for greener pastures. I have a friend of mine who ran a help desk and some IT teams, and this is a number of years ago. He worked uh, it was one of my clients back in, oh, wow, like 1990s. And uh, he had read a lot about Myers-Briggs and did the MBTI and the 16 different types and then used that at work. He said, I'm going to go and look at all of my people and I'm going to match them to their personality types. And then I'm going to look at the jobs that we have and see if I need to reposition. And people who tended to be introverted, who are in user-facing, customer-facing roles and interactive found out that, hey, we also have things that people need to be work where they're not back and forth. Other folks wanted to go ahead and be creative, but they were in routine jobs and vice versa. By realigning the same people into the same jobs that he had, really didn't get any extra budget. Morale went up, retention went up to 100%. It worked great. And maybe I'll do a whole episode on this at some point. And for a lot of us who are familiar with our Myers-Briggs, for, for the record, I'm always typed out as ENTJ. Um, there's other people though that type out differently. I remember when I was in my business school that we went through and we did that. And one of my classmates, we kind of went around everybody saying, well, what have you learned? And I had, I had done this before in the military and, and et cetera, but I was doing it again in business school. And he said, I'm an ISFP. And I think of myself as a natural leader. And this guy's like completely opposite on all four categories. And it's interesting. Your initial response was like, well, no, you're not. You're opposite for me, and I've done really well. And then I said, wait a minute, that's prejudice, and that's wrong. But it was interesting watching that pop up in my own mind and very quickly pushed it down because these are preferences. These are not absolutes. This is not somebody saying, hey, I'm four foot 11, but I want to be a center on a professional basketball team. Some things just don't happen. But when it comes to leadership preferences, behavioral preferences, We've got a lot of latitude in our organizations to understand, can we match people where they're going to be most successful? And there's an encouragement for you for that to investigate that. So how do we summarize all this? Cybersecurity Ventures estimates there'll continue to be nearly three and a half million unfilled cyber jobs over the next four years, which means they're going to likely be attractive options for your people, especially for the rock stars, but even for the marginal performers as well. So think carefully about the message you communicate. Do you value profit over people? If so, you'll likely get compliance, but not commitment. Do you hoard information and not disseminate into the last minute? Or do you let your team feel like they're, quote, in on things? And that's a little bit more direct participation in the organization's future. And therefore, they feel like they bought in. They're part of it. You've trust me with this internal plan, this direction we're going, that motivates people. And do you truly listen to your people's needs and their goals and their dreams and their desires? 
Because if you don't, someone else will. By understanding the marketplace, getting to know your people, improving communications with your staff, gaining and demonstrating emotional intelligence, aligning your people with their sense of purpose, and creating and maintaining a positive corporate climate, you're much more likely to keep your team intact during the remainder of the Great Resignation. Thanks for your time. This is G. Mark Hardy, and until next time, thank you for listening, and stay safe.